The Water Values Podcast, Session 2. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimson. Hello and welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Today our guest is Jack Whitman, a hydrogeologist with Intera. Jack's a fascinating guy and he's done work all over the United States. He's going to talk with us today about water planning issues. We're going to learn a lot about water planning, including the elements of a water plan, the importance of the data that goes into that water plan, and even some things you might not think about, like the relationship of water resources to investment in other public infrastructure, like highways. Now, as you know, before we get into the podcast, I need to make a few disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said... Let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Jack, thanks very much for joining us. Greatly appreciate your time here. Um, to start off, Jack, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with water? Well, I began my work in the water industry as a water treatment plant operator in Salt Lake City in 1980. Um, I had a degree in science, but I didn't have a job. And I was working uh, in the city doing any odd job at the time. Um, and I applied and then ended up working as a, at the City Creek Water Treatment Plant in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it was an excellent job. It really gave me a great sense of what has to happen when you take raw water out of a stream, which is what we did, treat it and deliver it to um, the heart of downtown Salt Lake City. It's the, and, and that was one of the interesting things about that job is that I had to record um, snowfall, precipitation, flows in the stream, and then how much we diverted into the uh, plant because we would most of the year take a fraction of the total flow in the stream um, and so I kind of had this, this, I ended up learning about watershed hydrology just by watching the system work. It was really pretty interesting. Um, but from there, what I did was I, I decided this was a really interesting field. I liked what I was beginning to learn at the treatment plant. So I, I left that job and went back to school and went to school at Utah State University where I got my bachelor's degree and got a master's degree in watershed science, science hydrology. And so I studied in uh, under a group of watershed scientists and did work in the western desert of Utah looking at infiltration and how cattle 
And then I looked at other disturbances, but particularly for my master's thesis on the effect of cattle on soil compaction and infiltration rates in the in the basin range provinces. Um, so that, that's how I got my beginning. That's my educational background. And then I went from there to the division of oil, gas, and mining as a mine reclamation hydrologist. And in that position, I was evaluating the reclamation plans for coal mines and mineral uh, hard rock mines in different places in Utah, um, evaluating basically what their whether they had culverts in the right places, whether the cross sections for the streams or the, the, the ditches were proper, and whether they could handle floods that might occur. Um, and in, when I was in that position, I ended up working on nuclear waste isolation, which happened kind of at the same time, and ended up in the governor's office doing that, uh, working on the review of the Department of Energy's plans for building a deep geologic repository and they had three potential sites identified in Utah. And I led the technical team that evaluated that proposal. And it got me really deep in the, in the political and science uh, sides of groundwater. And it was, it was a great position. I moved from there to the uh, Yakima Indian Nation where I had a job for about five years working for the tribe as their hydrologist. <clears throat> and they were reviewing the Hanford sites plan. They had narrowed the th prospect for a deep repository to three sites. And I worked there, ended up doing all sorts of things, working on agricultural impacts, working on the effects of high capacity wells, all sorts of cool work. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of took this long arc in the West before <laughs> I ended up moving back to the Midwest. Um, I met a guy who ended up being my uh, PhD advisor when I was on a, a really interesting trip in Russia in 1989. So that was 25 years ago, I guess, almost. And that was uh, a real change of my life where I decided to go the rest of the way and plunge into it and study groundwater. I knew the surface water side and I wanted to understand and be an expert in the groundwater side. So I went to school with uh, Dr. Hank Heichema and he is a professor or was a professor at, he's now retired from Indiana University in Bloomington. So I've been in Bloomington, Indiana since 1990 and uh, doing all sorts of work here. I've had several, I built a company here uh, doing consulting hydrology. I um, sold the company, worked for the, the construction firm that purchased that company and did that for five years. I was the national director of geosciences for Lane Christensen uh, and they build well fields. They just, they, they construct what we were designing. Um, I ran a group of scientists across the country. There were geophysicists and hydrologists and geologists. All of them, all the scientific minds that go into designing these intakes and 
subsurface groundwater systems, these wells. Um, so kind of that's the that's the arc right now. I'm at, I'm with Intera. Intera is a water supply planning company that specializes in a few of the things that I just mentioned. Um, they they do nuclear waste isolation. That's where they got their start uh, in the 70s, and um, they do mine uh, dewatering and mine water management. They also do environmental work and they do water supply work and water resources work. And that's the group that I'm a part of. So what are you working on on now? What what types of projects are you bringing your experience to bear on? Um, today, these days, what I'm working on, I'm, I'm really devoting myself to a couple of key um, areas. And, and as I mentioned, I'm interested in the world of water supply planning as the firm is kind of focused on that, the Intera has done a lot of work um, evaluating aquifer yield capabilities in Texas where their headquarters is. And I'm actually helping evaluate the, the water supply planning needs of several uh, of the Eastern states. So I'm currently engaged in Indiana working for the State Chamber of Commerce here, developing a kind of a framework for future water supply planning here in the state. Okay. So in terms of a water supply plan, you know, what elements do you typically look at to put that together? And what benefits does a water supply plan have? Well, the, the most important part of the plan, I think, being a practical person in general is I like to think there's a need. So there has to be a, I'm, I'm a believer in having a problem to solve, not just having a solution and hoping somebody comes along that is interested in it. Um, so what I'm trying to do in the state of Indiana is look at the differences in water supplies across the state because the northern central and southern parts of the state all have different water supply conditions. Um, the northern part of the state has rather extensive aquifers, sandy productive systems that are used primarily for agriculture. So for three months of the year, all the wells are being pumped hard to produce water for the growing season. Um, and that didn't used to be the case. Uh, 20 years ago, there weren't that many wells in the area, but the price of corn and commodities has gone up. So the need for for water, the insurance of irrigation is really what's what's new. And and part of that is because the droughts are more serious and the and the risk, the financial risk is larger than it ever has been. So a lot of these farms have consolidated so they really need to know more about their availability of supplies. So in the northern part of the state, it's kind of agriculture. In the central part of the state, it's driven, the needs for water supply are driven by municipal growth. So around Indianapolis and in, in the communities that are larger communities in the state, in the, in the middle of the state, unlike the northern part, there are fewer and let's say more isolated water sources. So there are fewer rivers, but there, there are some bigger rivers, but they're far apart. 
the aquifers aren't as extensive or productive. So really the needs have to be met by these fewer, more scattered resources. And in the southern part of the state, the, the use of water is primarily for power and for mining, uh, dewatering, um, and some municipal, but again, those are the two big um, players in the in the water market. So there are, there are different uh, problems, different times of the year when they have needs. There are different um, problems of coordination. So if you're a power plant and you're putting the water back in the stream, there's a different, you're actually just heating up the water. That's not quite the same as if you are taking it, putting on a crop and, and it's gone, it's been evapotranspirated, it's in the atmosphere now. So each one of these areas of the state has different user needs and different solutions. Basically, how do we manage these resources to meet all of our needs at once? It almost sounds like you're putting together three separate water plans, one for the northern part, one for the central part, and one for the southern part. Well, in the end, what we're doing, again, backing up a step, we're trying to show the state that there are these three distinct regions that need to have different uh, voices in the room and different um, approaches when, when the discussion takes place. Because the discussion itself doesn't take, it isn't an engineering problem, it's really a, a community discussion. So the, the people in the municipalities have to work together and say, okay, we're gonna, we plan on building three more wells in this aquifer. And someone has to figure out whether those three wells, those th new wells are going to um, make it difficult or impossible for the community next door to build their three wells that they need for their growth. Um, so I'm trying to basically, instead of solving the problem, I'm trying to make sure that the state understands the character of the problem and how it is different geographically. So I'm doing a lot of work with the, let's say the water budget and the demand that's, that we know is uh, on the resource in different parts of the state. Now, could you talk a little bit about, you know, in terms of preparing this plan, the, the modeling that you do? And because I've heard of the, uh, the myth of the water budget, and I'm just kind of curious about you know, what, what your take on that is and, and how you successfully model, um, model what the hydrology of a basin is. Okay. Well, this is a, it's an interesting question because there's sort of, there's layers to the, how you approach these problems. There, there, there are steps you go through. And um, one of my professors from, at Utah State University told me back when I just started the, my educational program, he said, you know, buried inside of a lot of these ecosystem models, there will be a hydrologic model. And he said, you know what, in the end, that's the only piece that works because it's, <laughs> it's physics, you know? And, and what's funny about that to me is that it, it, it's kind of true, of course, but, but in that if you really do know enough to build a 
simulation model of an aquifer and you have the, the, the data that you need, it, it's incredibly robust. So having done a lot of work um, with designing well fields and designing monitoring plans for new well fields, I can say that if you have the time and effort and money that you can put into the projects like that, you can, you can get very close to predicting um, with unbelievable precision what the changes in water levels will be when you turn new wells on and or have floods or droughts or anything like that. You can do a lot of amazing prediction, but that's usually local. That's like right near the wells. When you're looking at water, these basins, you're looking at multiple counties, you know, scattered across the state. So you might be looking at 15 counties or more. And, and then the problem isn't as nicely defined and the data is scattered. So, so let's think about that. When you zoom out of something that you, if you zoom in, it's understood very well, but you zoom out away from it, you have to because the scale of water supply planning is large, not small. What you're really having to do is just like a picture becomes pixelated, you have to accept the fact that, that even though you might have information that's locally accurate in a, in a place in that big picture, it doesn't, that only informs a little teeny piece of the total picture and the whole picture is now pixelated and, and fuzzy. So, so you have to accept the kind of uncertainty and, and change that you've just made in the scale of your thinking. But it's okay in, for the most part because again, we've done more work in this country with measuring streams than most people realize. So we have stream flow records and we have a lot of information about how much water is coming down these rivers. What we don't know is very well is how, how new sub abstractions that's taking water out of the system, how new abstractions will change and cascade through this um, kind of linked watershed, nested watershed system. So pumping a lot of water out of one aquifer might actually dry up a stream that was counted on to produce some flow that was measured historically forever, but now it's gone. So, so there are um, complications and they've been grappled with it all over the country. But what, what Indiana unusually has, unlike many states, is it has an almost 25 year record of its water use. And that's phenomenal. That means that, that all water users that have the capacity to pump more than 75 gallons a minute have, a, have been submitting monthly, uh, each year they submit a, a record of what they withdrew each month of the year from each of their withdrawal points, their wells or their, their uh, diversions. So Indiana has this other piece of information that most states don't have. And I think in the future, all states will need to have this kind of data, but just because I've found out how powerful it is working with the state database here. And what it allows you to do then is to get closer to um, tuning these large scale basin models that you use to predict 
the future with, basically. You try to say, well, look, in the past, we used this much, and then it, it grew by this much, and that changed the stream flow by this much. Okay, so if we do more, this is what's going to happen. Or if we do less over here, this will happen. Because we have here in Indiana this great database that we can kind of apply to some of these things and get more insights. Um, what we don't have, though, and other states do, we don't have much in the way of information about um, the groundwater levels themselves. We have, I think, you know, a handful of monitoring wells that have information. So we really, at the height of the, the, the deepest point, I should say, of the, the drought in 2012, we couldn't answer the common question that came up, how much water is left in this aquifer? We didn't know. So while we had good, um, we could tell people how much was being used, we couldn't tell how much was left in the tank. And that is a problem. Right. And that's something that will be fixed. Sure. It, it almost, it sounds like when you're putting together this type of water plan that, you know, it, it's, it's just like you're putting together a mathematical model. If you have junk data going in, you're going to get junk out. If you have, if you're developing a water plan, if you have junk data in, you're going to get junk data out. Is that or, That's right? I so, think so. So, I so think. the quality of the water plan is really going to be dependent upon how much data uh, you have going into that plan. It is. It's the data is the, let's say the foundation of the, the work. Um, the superstructure though, the thing that sits on top of the data and this is a, another thing I've sorted out after working in this business for a while, is are these, are these communities of people who have to eventually talk to each other who aren't used to talking to each other. So it's rare for water utilities to meet with their neighboring water utility. They wouldn't usually have a reason except at the annual convention of water utilities, and they don't talk about what they're doing exactly because it's a local control issue about what, how many wells I have and which ones are running and which ones aren't. But when you go to this planning process, you, everybody gets around the same table looking at the same basin and, and you have to put dots on that map and you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put some more dots on, on my area, in my area. I have to, to, to satisfy the needs of growth. And your neighbor then has the chance to say, well, what do I do? So the culture and the people and the conversations that take place are critical to the success of, of any kind of planning effort. So it's one thing to get two water utilities, neighbors to talk to each other and to, and to start trusting each other and and thinking of their problem as being common, it's the, the next step is when you have to explain to the irrigator and the power plant and the, and the industrial facility that they also have to be in the room also. They need to, they have the same interest. You're trying to manage this resource. You can't just talk to the folks that have a city tag on their shirt that says, you know, I'm from this city. You have to have the all the users in the room. And that's where the kind of cultural tricks come into play to have this same conversation. 
Got it. So it, it almost sounds like micro level water conflict resolution. Um, you know, you hear a lot about there, there are areas of the globe where there's going to be water conflict in the future. And this, this sounds like just a micro level of it uh, in terms of the, the U.S. Right. And you're kind of doing it in an anticipatory way. So you, pre- you prevent the, the dreaded conflict by anticipating the problems and trying to resolve them beforehand. Sure. Okay. So. Okay. So we've, we've kind of, I, th- I think you've laid a great foundation for the importance of water planning. Um, in terms of, in terms of how the plan actually comes about, you know, what, what type of elements are in that plan and, you know, what kind of time frame are you looking at? Is this, is this a 10 year plan, a 20 year plan? Does it have short term and long term goals? I think that you, um, let's first talk about the elements of the plan. Sure. The, the plan has to at least um, explain to the people at the scale that they have to think about it where the resources are. Everybody knows where the river is, but they may not know how much water's in it at the low flow time every year. So a lot of folks, um, they, they need to be informed again about the, the, the hydrologic facts of their area. So it's one thing to explain how much water's in these rivers. It's another to estimate the sustainable yield of aquifers. Um, so you have to, at some point, you have to develop a methodology that probably will change over time as you get more information, but you have to have some kind of simple way to explain how much water there is and how much can be obtained because uh, everyone's at the table. Remember there's the, the, the environmental community might be there as well saying, well, we need water for the fish or something. So everybody has to be in that room. And then So the resource has to be defined, and that's always a trick because in water systems, unlike, say, electrical power systems, there's storage. So there's a lot of storage in the ground in aquifers. There's storage in reservoirs. There there are lag times between when the rain falls and when the storage actually, when it becomes available in storage. So there are a lot of different things that people have to... um, learn in order to be good at this planning effort. So the resource is part one. And then people have to um, basically look at their checking account. That is, how much are we spending? How much are we using? It's not always spent. It's because a lot of the water goes back in the system that you use. It doesn't doesn't all evaporate. A lot of it stays in the basin. Consumptive use. Consumptive use, correct. So, you, so you've got a lot of non-consumptive uh, uses or fractionally non-consumptive. And so people have to become aware of the users and w- what fraction of their use is consumptive and non-consumptive. And then you, you need to come up with some agreed-upon threshold for what will be an allowable impact to each other. Like if, if you build a well field it, for, for a single utility, each well has a, um, a, an impact on the neighboring well in a single well field. So if you turn all the wells on, they're all kind of fighting each other, 
creating more drawdown than they would if they were spread out very far apart. So you have to do, you have to think that way about designing how the operation of the system, how you withdraw or don't withdraw maybe some water from these aquifers because of the different needs at different times. So for example, if you're thinking about demand and you have a large fraction of the users in one part of your region that are irrigators, they don't need water in the winter. They don't need water in the um, spring usually. They need water in the summer and fall. That's or you know maybe late spring and summer. So you might want to, if you have options, if you're a municipal utility and you can use surface water or groundwater, you might not use groundwater while your irrigating neighbors are using their most at the at their peak needs. So there's there's a cooperative component to the to the um, the plan itself to how you operate. So the short term, which might be you know an operational annual operational approach, how do we work our own system? How do we monitor our the the aquifers or the streams to know when we've hit these thresholds and then. How will you behave and what will you do when we get to that point? That's kind of the, the first phase. That's the let's talk to our neighbors. Let's get in the room and discuss it. Let's write it up. And then every region then rolls that up and that becomes a kind of a state operating plan for water, a water resource plan. Um, long term, though, what you have to do is you have to project into the future some decades into the future to see where you're going to need water in the future that might be larger than what is available. So in the state here and other states, when you're developing, for example, or building new interstates, you're, you're, you're going to stimulate growth. You're hoping to, I think, most of the time when new interstates are built, that growth is going to follow that, that corridor, that infrastructure. And when growth occurs in that area, you have to have a plan for how you'll satisfy the needs of the different uh, developments that occur along that, that interstate. So there's kind of a forecasting, projecting component, and that might be a 50-year look at growth. And so there's, let's just think about that. I mean, we, hydraulics is involved that early on, you've got to know about you know, how, how water can be uh, recharged, how water can be uh, you know, stored, how it can move through these systems. You also then have to think about, there's sort of an economic effect. Where will the growth occur? Where do we think it will occur? Where is it already happening around the city? Um, how do we stimulate that growth? And then do we have the resources to satisfy the needs of the future population? And it sounds like there's, there's a pretty strong tie between public infrastructure investment and water resources in terms of, I mean, you, met, you used the example of the interstate. Public, public funds are used to build that interstate, and it's, it's going to have a big effect on water resources in that area where the interstate goes through. Right. Is that, was that what I'm getting? Okay. That's, you got that right. And, and it's happened in reverse too, because there are places where reservoirs have been built that have never been used. 
So you've built the reservoir because you thought, well, someday we might need it, but nothing else happened. There was no interstate, there was no growth, there was no plan for growth. So it can go wrong both directions. You can, you can anticipate growth with, without doing any of the other things that you need. So you build the water system, you basically store a lot of water there and nothing happens. Or you can do the other way where you just build an interstate and then things happen and then you realize you don't have the water. So it's linking up these different economic development components so that business and growth and communities are stabilized for the most part in, in parts of the country that have water. Okay. Now, in terms of, of when you're water planning, I think you, you must bring a unique perspective having spent time in the West and time in the East. Could you talk a little bit about uh, – you know, macro issues in terms of east and west and water planning? Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a curse and a blessing to have spent time in Utah and New Mexico and Colorado and Washington, eastern Washington, the dry side of Washington State. There's <laughs> a, I, people think when I say I'm, I've spent time in Washington, they immediately imagine the Olympic Peninsula and big green trees and glaciers or something. <laughs> and what, what it was was, uh, Yakima, when I was there for five years, the average rainfall for the five years was two point, or excuse me, five point five inches a year, or something like that. It was, it's it's in the rain shadow of Mount Rainier, so it's this super dry place in a in an area that has huge rivers. So it was it. They irrigated like mad. They had two. They had three hundred plus three hundred twenty days of sun. So they had huge. It's like second to the Imperial Valley in terms of their agricultural production: hops and mint and tomatoes and pears and all of apples and everything. So water, water use in the West um, is very uh, thought out. There are there are water districts. There are there are water managers, and there are um, there are all sorts of governance layers, just as there are in. Um, I'm not sure if there's an analog exactly in the east, but in the in the west, there are a lot of people paying attention to water at the federal, state, and local level. And they're paying attention to it because it's actually money in the end. People get people can sell water rights separately in the West. And so agricultural uh, water rights holders are able to sell their water rights to the municipal governments in the in the Treasure Valley um, near Boise, Idaho. Um, I think that's right, the Treasure Valley. They, they, there's this transition going on where, they, where it takes the, the, the town and the suburbs are growing into these hay fields. Well, it takes less water to grow homes than it does hay. And so they're, they're actually ending up with little bits of excess every time the, 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 uh, the city occupies more of this once agricultural land. And then they have to figure out the Bureau of Reclamation or some other entity has to figure out how they're going to deal with this excess water. Who gets it? 
in the wet in the east because in the west it is so tight and there are these methods um, in the east we don't have any sense of the value of water and yet in minnesota illinois wisconsin indiana each of these states and the big cities in them have have actually hit walls where they have for the first time ever been forced to deal with the impacts of their own water use and it's absolutely new and this is a brand new uh condition so the fact that i've been out west and i can tell at least stories about what people will do for six million gallons a day in albuquerque <laughs> and they and they and people in this side of the country are stunned by these ideas that they'd pay hundreds of millions of dollars for that much water and here we think well what do you mean six million i can get that out of three or four wells and and that's not that much well actually here for the first time in some areas it is becoming more of a of an issue and and actually regionally there are high water use industries that probably belong in indiana and not in new mexico and and the same could be true and vice versa there, of course there's been a flight to the desert southwest but basically if indiana doesn't and all the other eastern states don't have methods rules and procedures they won't be able to capture these industrial markets that need water i think i mean it's interesting there's a lot of chatter now about corporations and businesses uh, really accounting for water risk when they're making some of their strategic decisions in terms of where to locate and things of that nature. Water is, is climbing the ladder of importance. Um, and so I think that's a very valid point and a good point that you brought up there that, that uh, you know, perhaps some of those businesses who are, you'd mentioned located in New Mexico may be better suited to the Midwest Maybe they made their initial decision to locate in New Mexico before water was that high on the on on the uh, ladder for corporate decision making. Right. I think actually the way it works, you know, I because I love the West. I don't know if I would move from Albuquerque very easily. It's a great city and all that. But I think that it's that corporate level that you're talking about that has to be uh, accounted for now and in every really did before and the reason that everyone has to think about it now is because for example in texas where it used to be just go get what you need and take it um it's it's a lot more complicated now they've got they, they have simple not simple they have fairly complex groundwater availability models that they run in every one of the regions and every region has to run the same model in order to evaluate the impacts of their proposed next use so they have to and the same in virginia of all places virginia which is a, a eastern and fairly wet state they have the same approach they use existing they develop models of aquifers and then new users have to basically petition for the right to extract more water from these aquifers because they have had trouble so the eastern side of the country is waking up to this new situation where this where water supply and water needs are in fact 
more relevant than they ever have been for business and for the world. And so I think that that's what's happening is that basically the the part of the country that never had to pay attention to it is is paying attention. Yeah, they're starting to realize the value of water. And I, I assume, have you seen any movement towards, I mean, earlier we, we talked about data and how important that was and how that has helped you prepare water plans. Are you seeing more states in the east move towards implementing measures to collect data on water usage? Yes. Um, there are problems, though, because in, for example, in Illinois, um, industrial water use is considered proprietary information. In California, agricultural water use is considered proprietary information. So, I mean, it's bizarre to me. So public water suppliers have to report their annual, not monthly, which I think is a big issue, by the way, because the peaks are the real problem, but they at least provide an annual summary. But because they've been doing it a certain way for a long time, they are going to have to change the way they uh, report eventually. And that change, I've decided as a matter of uh, just observation is is pain in the world so people just don't like to change whatever they've learned how to do and i think that eventually it will change because it has to but we have to change how we think about the resource the resource isn't the in the east the resource is generally it's waters of the state the state actually controls and has rights to the resource now that's there are nuances legally to the difference the, the different states as to how they how they allow that ownership right to exist within the state or or in the private hands but but in general the states have to come up with more sophisticated ways to track water use if they're going to manage water use it's just a fact mm-hmm. well so, I, I think what you've conveyed today is just absolutely terrific. Um, states need to to take a greater role in water use reporting so that you develop the data so that water supply plans and water plans can be more effective when when they come about. So that's, that, right. that's, that's kind of the gist of what I'm getting. Uh, if we boil everything we've spoken about today down into – uh, one one kernel of information that seems to me to be it that and I think it's their responsibility I think the other thing that some people would like to imagine is that it's some kind of um, option I don't think so I think that this is really a responsibility as fundamental as plowing the roads I think that a lot of people think that somehow government shouldn't do this and I think this is the one of the those places that where it's hard to argue that that anyone but government shouldn't do this kind of thing, collect information about how the state is using the resource in common. Um, I think the next, the next thing that has to be understood eventually is what is the value of water? I think that's the future, is that no one really pays for the water that they sell. They pay for the cost of selling it the cost of producing it, treating it, delivering it. They don't pay for the thing itself. So imagine that we paid 
only the transport for the pork we ate because there was just a lot of pork around. So all you had to pay was just for the driver and the butcher, but you never paid for the pig. Well, that's about what we have right now with water. We do not pay for the, for the water. We pay for this, what it takes to get it to our house or to get it to our, our crop. We pay for the pump. In the future, that's going to change. I don't know how long, that might be a long time, but eventually the, the, there will be a time where water that has almost no value in times of, of uh, surplus or a negative value even, it, will, it has an almost infinite value when there's shortage. And we're going to have to smooth that out with methods for paying for what we use because eventually, and I'm, I'm talking long-term, eventually there has to be some kind of way to uh, incentivize different um, sources of supply, for example. Um, I think we are usually not in a good spot when we're using ancient water, fresh ancient water that's in a deep aquifer, because I think that's for, that could be what our grandchildren need. And we should use the water that rained recently and is coming down the streams or is in the shallow aquifers because that's replaced fairly quickly. I think there are, there are all sorts of future changes on the horizon that have to do with the way water is valued. Right. You know, I, I, I know that you're not alone in those thoughts and uh, that's, that's one of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast now is because uh, it, it just seems that I think um, there's more and more attention being paid to it and there needs to be greater public education and, and effort by the public to understand the issues that surround water. Well, uh, Jack, we're uh, coming up on the limit here. Um, could you just tell us a little bit, if, if people want to learn more about what you do and your work, where can they go to find that out? find my name and a web page on Intera's web page. So Intera is I-N-T-E-R-A dot com, Intera. And you can just go to the uh, contact us or whatever the, there's a staff directory page and I'm on that page and you can shoot me an email from there. My, uh, my email though, I can, I can state it out loud here. It's J-W-I-T-T-M-A-N at intera.com, so jwhitman.com. And so that would be one way, um, and that would probably be the best. I think that that would be great to hear from any of the listeners. Terrific. Well, Jack, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate your time. Uh, I think you provided us with some very valuable insights. Uh, thank you again, and uh, until next time, we'll have to have you again on again sometime. Because uh, there was a lot that I wanted to get to that you know we we started getting into the water planning we just didn't have time to get to so that's okay thanks David I think this podcast is a great idea and I I wish you a lot of success and feel free to call me back I look forward to it terrific thanks Jack thank you well that was my interview with Jack Whitman a hydrogeologist with Intera I thought he was fantastic I learned a lot about water planning in that interview. I hope you did as well. I thought it was very interesting how some states uh, provide proprietary uh, 
treatment for water consumption, and therefore it's really hard to get the data necessary to put a good water plan together, uh, just because of that that proprietary exclusion. So I'd be I'd be very interested to see how that changes in the future. In any event, I had a number of other topics to discuss with Jack, and the breadth and depth of his discussion on water planning issues filled over 40 minutes. We'll have to invite Jack back on the podcast for another interview sometime in the future to continue the discussion and to see how his water planning activities in Indiana turned out. Well, what interested you about that interview? Please let me know by posting a comment on the show notes, which will be posted at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod two. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash P-O-D numeral two. I also appreciate any feedback you give, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also email me at david at thewatervalues.com or you can tweet at me at DTM1993. Contact me with suggestions for potential interviewees, water issues you'd like to hear more about, or even just to let me know what you liked and what you didn't like about the podcast. I'm always trying to improve, and I want to deliver the information about water that you want to hear. I appreciate your support by spreading the word about the Water Values Podcast and by providing an honest review on iTunes and Stitcher. I promise you this, I'll never turn down a five-star review. In closing, remember the core message of the Water Values Podcast. Water is our most valuable resource, so join me in going out into the world and acting like it. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.